Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm your host, and I'm only as hip as my guest. And uh, I'm excited. I'm very excited for my guest today. He's a uh, he's a fellow South Jersey gentleman, which you know we have that certain bonding because people always mistake when you say you're from New Jersey that you're from North Jersey. So you have to tell everybody you're from Philadelphia. So he's probably going through that. And he has a new book coming out called The Reason You're Alive. And my guest is Matthew Quick. How you doing, Matt? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. So um, I got to talk to you. Um, when you when when did you start writing? Did you always write as a kid? Or what was your process? Because I know you became a teacher and everything. But when did you find this love for writing? Uh, you know, it started probably somewhere around sixth or seventh grade. Um you know, I started, I was encouraged to write by teachers, of course. Um, but I found that in high school, I had a lot of stuff going on in my mind, in my chest, and I had no idea what it was. Uh, now I know it was anxiety, and which sometimes led to depression. And I found that the writing kind of made that go away. Um, and again, you know, when I was at Collingswood High School, I, I would not have had the vocabulary to, to say that. Um, but maybe just intuitively, it was it was very comforting for me to write. And I started writing stories and poetry and what I was calling a novel at the time. But, you know, I had no idea what I was doing back then. It was just it just was something that I felt that I needed to do. Um, and of course, when I went on to LaSalle in Philly, you know, went to college, um, I met you know, other writers and uh, Justin Cronin was there at the time and he was my teacher. And that's when I started to figure it out, like, you know, what I was doing, what story structure was, like why it was important to me. Um, and I started to gain vocabulary and it, it became a very important part of my life, even before, uh, way before I started to publish. And I had a teacher at LaSalle by the name of Helena White, who, um, was very into drama. She was my theater teacher, and she encouraged me to write plays when I, I was at LaSalle. And, and so I did, and I would send them to her, and she'd spend the summer critiquing them and uh, ripping them to shreds, and she was a tough critic, but I learned a lot from her. And I, I knew that then that I, I wanted to write. But, of course, when you graduate from college, you know, you have student loans and all the rest. You need to go find a job, and, and that's how I ended up teaching because um, I needed health insurance and money, and, you know, so I taught for a while. Well, it's funny, you know, you talked about, you know, the anxiety and the depression, and I think, you know, because we're, we're both older, I think a lot of us went through that, and at the time, though, no one <laughs> – no one sat there. It wasn't in the forefront. So it was always sort of pushed to the back of the table. And I think a lot of us never knew what we were going through. But I think that's the way we found self-expression because we wanted to get out of that funk we were in. Yeah. I mean, you know, I grew up in Oakland, you know, small, pretty much a blue collar town. And, uh, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, you, no one was talking about mental health. Um, even if I I mean, I didn't think I had mental health problems. I would have never said that when I was 16 or 17. Uh, but even if I knew that it was anxiety and depression, I would have been terrified to to say that to anyone. That was just not something that you talked about. Uh, and it wasn't until well into my, you know, 30s that I got comfortable 
even saying I have anxiety, you know, that was, it took me to about 34 to, to be comfortable saying that publicly. Um, even though when I look back, it was there as early as, you know, maybe six or seven, and I can remember those feelings. So, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, literature is, you know, in high school, I started reading, um, and you, you start to pick up that the novelists that they give you in school are, are talking about the human condition. And, you know, it's, it was a place where I could say, wow, like other people struggle and other people have thoughts that are like mine. Um, so it was, it was a good mirror for me at that time. So now you, you get out, you start teaching. I believe you taught in Haddonfield. Am I right? I taught at uh, Bancroft for a year. I worked with teenagers diagnosed with autism, and then I went over to Eastern High School in Borges, and then I ended up at Haddonfield for a few years. Okay, so so you're in the South Jersey area. You're teaching. Now, as you're teaching, and you know, in your back of your mind, you know you want to write. Or, as you're teaching, are you working on a novel? Are you writing? Are you Because teaching is such a dedication, or did you like take summer break to say, I'm going to write? Or how are you starting to get your basis for your novels back when you were teaching? Well, I, I would write in the summer, um, you know, and it, you know, when I went into teaching, I thought, wow, teaching is going to be super easy. You're done every day at three and, you know, you have the summers off and, you know, no one tells you that uh, when you sign up to be an English teacher, you're going to be creating essays for 20 hours every weekend and you'll be so exhausted by the time that you get to, to, to June that you just want to fall down and sleep for two months. Um, you know, no one would be a high school English teacher if, if you knew that was the case going in. So it was it was tough. Um, and, you know, especially when I landed at Haddonfield, that's that's a district that expects a lot out of its teachers and a lot out of its students. And I was teaching already classes and these were kids trying to get into the top schools. And, um, you know, they were very much being pushed into the math and sciences and, you know, art and dancing and poetry and, you know, fiction writing. That was that was all just hobbies you know that was not you know they weren't told that those were career choices and i would tell my students that you know writing matters literature matters and you know if this is something you want to do then you, you should take the steps to do it and i wasn't doing it myself and i started to feel like a hypocrite and i've talked about this a lot already um but it was it was a tough reality for me to wake up around 29 and and say everything you're telling your your students is important is being pushed back in your own life you know you're repressing all of these these instincts to write and and to to put your stories into the world and you, you know I was really proud of the work I was doing at Haddonfield as a teacher I, I think teaching is a noble profession but it wasn't what I felt called to do and you know I, I had that breakdown you know I had that existential crisis I had that you know moment where um, I said I have tenure at this great high school and you know, the next 20 to 25 years could go by very quickly if I don't do something. And that's when I made a break to to quit teaching and, and to start writing full time, which was not something that a lot of people understood at the time. I'm sure. Um, people, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm sure. I'm saying I'm sure people didn't understand that. It must have been it must have been scary for you, too. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, a lot of times we come into these crossroads where they're exciting because it's something that you really want to do. But they're scary and you probably have your critics going well, what's he doing? He's got tenure at, at Haddonfield, you know, a great district. I mean, so what? when you finally made that decision, what was the first thing you did? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in context. You know, people often say, you know, now, obviously, that, you know, I've had some success. So they'll say, wow, you were really brave. You know, you must have known something. Um, you must have really believed in yourself. 
you know, and I, I always am appreciative when people say that, but it was really more that I was, I was terrified of the thought of being a teacher for the next 20 years. And I heard another writer once say uh, at her talk, she, she said the people who make it in fiction writing are the people who can't do anything else. So, you know, if you can work a nine to five job and be happy, you're going to do that because it's so much easier. So when I left teaching, it, it wasn't this, you know, brave move where I, I had this plan and I said, you know, in, in several years, I'm going to end up at the Oscars. Like it wasn't like that. It was I was just so profoundly miserable that the any alternative was better. You know, I, I thought if I'm penniless and writing stories all day, then that's going to be better than going into a building where. I'm not comfortable and I feel like I have to be this fake person every day to get through the day. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it was brave at all. I would say it was more um, a last ditch effort to save myself. But the first thing that I did um, when I quit teaching is I, I sold my house and my wife and I, this is before the crash, so we made a little bit of money on the sale. Uh, and my wife and I chaperoned a trip to Peru with some students. It was my last thing I did as a teacher. And then we went to Southern Africa and we hiked around, um, we backpacked around Namibia and South Africa and um, Zambia. And so we had this adventure and then we hiked the Grand Canyon and uh, we were lucky enough that her parents had offered us a place to crash for a while. So we lived with her parents, which is um, both a, a tre tremendous gift, but it was also really hard for me to do. It was, it was, it was really humbling because I was brought up you don't take handouts. Um, and I, I needed that handout to, to have a place to write, um, where I didn't have to worry about making the money to, to pay rent for a few years. So that was really a blessing, but also a, a tough, a tough thing for me to, a tough gift for me to accept. I'll put it that way. Um, and so we moved in with my in-laws and I worked out of their basement for a while, which is where I wrote Silver Linings Playbook. Now, how did you get the idea for Silver Linings Playbook, and how long did it take you to write? Was it something that it came right away, and then you wrote it very quickly, or did you go back, edit, go back, edit? How long was the process of writing that book? Well, you know, the standard joke, you know, especially for the first novel is, you know, it takes your whole life to write it, you know, and I think that that's, that, that's typically true. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that was in the Silver Linings Playbook or produced the Silver Linings Playbook was stuff that I had been thinking about for decades, um, and of course, the mental health stuff, you know, the aspect, and then that goes all the way back to my childhood. But I was, I did an MFA, uh, Master of Fine Arts graduate degree at Goddard College, and um, it was a low res program, so you go there for a few weeks, and then you go home and write. And I had been working on stuff that uh, is what I thought I should be working on in grad school, not necessarily what I wanted to be working on. Again, I was wearing a mask. You know, I was trying to be a people pleaser. I was trying to fit into with my advisors who were really intelligent, smart people. But, you know, I had that baggage. Maybe it's coming from a blue collar neighborhood that you've got to put on this mask so people will accept you. Um, and I became very frustrated and disillusioned in the MSA, MFA process. And, there was one day in New England, I tell the story, I've told it multiple times, but I was running and uh, I was really frustrated. It was cold and there was a lot of clouds out and it was dark. And I was just thinking, you know, should I just quit writing? You know, do I not have it in me? And, and I remember that the sun peeked out from behind a cloud and there was this beautiful silhouette 
And I thought, what, what if it's an omen that I'm going to make it as a fiction writer? Um, and of course, immediately I said, that's ridiculous. It's magical thinking. You can't think of that. You know, you, you can't. This is just the sun in the sky and a cloud. That, it doesn't mean anything. And then I thought, what if I had a character who had this delusional philosophy uh, that gave him a lot of hope? And, you know, that that even though the philosophy was delusional, it propelled him through this awful situation. And that's when I was off writing the Silver Linux playbook. And I, I didn't show it to my MFA advisors. I said, this is the thing I'm going to do on my own. And I'm not going to show it to anyone. And I'm not going to ask for anyone's help. And my idea was to write it in the voices that would sound very much like somebody that had grown up outside of Philly, you know, somebody that was maybe I could see growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in. Um, somebody who was struggling with mental health issues, you know, Pat in the novel has experienced brain trauma and I'd worked with, with people who had experienced brain trauma when I worked at Bancroft. Um, so I drew very heavily from things I knew and, uh, you know, Pat was an ex-teacher and so I felt like I was really on familiar ground in an authentic way that maybe, you know, some of the work I was doing for my advisors in the MFA was me kind of being a poser or fronting or trying to write like an academic or, you know, like a literary writer or whatever. Uh, it really wasn't who I was. Um, so my idea was just to write this novel uh, in the voice of, of, in my voice, you know, just to, to, to make it authentic and to make it honest. And, you know, when my friends or family or my wife read it, they'd say, you know, this is 100% Matthew Quick for good, bad or indifferent. And that was that was a terrifying process, because when you take the mask off and get real, um, there's no protection, you know, and, and, you know, we had a lot of success with that book, but there are people who didn't like it. And, you know, um, you know, you always get bad reviews or whatever. And that was the first time that I felt I was kind of coming out as me. And I'd like to think that the people who saw value in it in Hollywood and New York and publishing in the movie industry saw something that was authentic. Um, you know, I can't say, you know, why Harvey Weinstein loved the book, but I'd like to think it was because it was me being authentic for the first time. Now, when you finally finish it, and you know, and you're proud of it, and it's you being authentic. So once again, when people, it's like anything, when you write a story, or I used to do stand-up comedy, when you tell a joke or tell a story, it's very close to you. And when people don't like it, you tend to take it a little more personal. And I mean, if you're writing a big action book, you're not going to get as upset because it's not like your baby. But when you when you finally got it finished, how long was the process till you got it sold? It happened. Um... I mean, it felt like forever, but, you know, now that I, I know how the business works, it, it happened pretty quickly. I graduated my MFA program, and I had been living with my in-laws for a few years, and I had no money. And I, I, I kind of made this – I said to my wife, I just need a few months to pitch, and if it doesn't work out, I'll, I'll start teaching again or whatever. And so I started pitching um, – I, I think it was January of – it was maybe 2007, I think it was – and I started to accrue rejections. <laughs> they piled up in an insane way. Um, it felt like every day I was getting rejections. And, you know, the Silver Lines Playbook was rejected by more than 70 agents rejected it before I found um, my literary agent who's with me to this day, Doug Stewart at Sterling Literistic, read it and said, I love this. And I think it has huge potential. And he, he, he plucked it out. And he had... A partnership with my now film agent Rich Green who it's been at various places before but he's at ICM now and Rich read it and he went 
he went crazy for it. He loved it. And he actually sold it in Hollywood first. He sold it um, to the Weinstein Company and uh, Anthony Mangello was involved and Sidney Pollack. Uh, they both since passed, unfortunately, but they, they were really big into it. And so it got a lot more hype in L.A. than it did in New York. And then it sold in Italy at auction first before anywhere else, which was bizarre. And, you know, I had no idea how the business worked back then. And then my agent actually had a little bit of trouble finding a home for it in New York until Sarah Crichton at Farstrauss and Giroux. Um, You know, she told me the story. She had had uh, lunch or drinks or something with the Italian editor who bought it. And he basically saw he basically sold her on it. You know, he said, this is this amazing book. And then we, we had the publisher. So that was, you know, that, that all happened within about five months. Um, and it was really a heady time because, um, you know, I went from, you know, unknown MFA student to all of a sudden having a film agent, a literary agent, a publisher and publishers around the world. We sold it in the UK and other places. And it was, it was really overwhelming in the best possible way but also um it was an anxious time too because you know when you write something in your in-laws basement you there's part of me you know is being authentic and raw and real and i had never talked about my own struggles with mental health before like anxiety and depression and all of a sudden i realized that i was gonna have to talk about this you know people are going to ask me questions that this was this was suddenly real in a way that i dreamed of like i wanted it but you you don't there's part of you that doesn't think that it will actually happen, even though you're working actively to accomplish this. So all of a sudden, it was it was very real in a very quick amount of time. And uh, my wife and I were able to move out of my in-laws' house, and we actually rented a small apartment on Haddon Ave in Collingswood, over top of a cheese shop. So it wasn't like we moved into a mansion or or bought a sports car or anything like that. It's just I had the money to pay my own rent for the first time in years. And that was an amazing feeling to be able to buy my own food and pay my own rent with the money I made from my fiction writing. Um, you know, I still get a little emotional thinking about that because that was something that um, that just seemed so unimaginable even just a couple months before. And then all of a sudden that was a reality. Now, when you when you sold it. How long till it started really taking off, and what was going through your mind then? Because you know, if you said you know you you have anxiety, I would think, and any of us who are anxious, if you start selling a book and it starts becoming a bestseller, you want to you want to enjoy that time, but also in the back of your head, you probably go, I I got to follow it up. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting because the the book came out and we had a a nice little run with it and we had a great review in the wall street journal i remember and the philadelphia inquirer gave us a fantastic review a little hometown love which i appreciated very much at the time um but you know it's 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 all you know decent and then you know it kind of went away for a while and i'd mentioned anthony Miguela and Sidney pollack were involved in the production of the film and they both passed unexpectedly um and it was kind of the, the movie was kind of in limbo for a while and I published a YA book and, you know, it, it was moderately successful, but it was nothing like what was coming. Um, and it wasn't until the movie came out that things really got intense and, you know, we were on the bestseller list for a long time. And obviously, um, you know, the movie experience was wild and Harvey sent me on a, Harvey Weinstein sent me on a, a, a promotional tour across the country, which was which was amazing, um, but I had never done anything like that before. So, 
you know, to put it in context, you get off a plane and you go and do interviews all day long. And I remember they uh, being in New York and doing satellite interviews for the first time where you're just in a, a room all by yourself. And there's a camera on you and the lights are dark and the camera the lights go up and they're like, OK, you're in Seattle in three seconds, three, two, one. And then you're talking to a, a red light and you have headphone on and you're, you're doing an interview live for TV in Seattle. Then the room goes dark and they're like, all right, you're going to Boston in five seconds, five, four, three, two. And you do that for hours, um, which is an amazing opportunity. But nobody teaches you how to do that you know you just you just jump in and then all of a sudden you're doing a media tour um you know you, it's an, an incredibly privileged position to be in but i didn't you have to learn on the fly like nobody coaches you and says this is what's going to happen today and here are the skills that you need um so someone for ang with anxiety it can be really um can be really heady and you know it's interesting too i won't name names but you know, the, the short amount of time that I spent in Hollywood, you would walk the red carpet with all of these stars who looked so comfortable and polished and smiling. And then as soon as the cameras are off and you're in the green room, they're they're just as nervous as you are. You know, you see people popping pills and drinking alcohol and shaking and sweating. And then as soon as the cameras go back on, like they, they have this 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 look of like everything's amazing and everything's awesome. But you see that that's an illusion, you know, and, 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 and not for everyone, but for a large majority, you realize that it's it's a, a show. It's Hollywood, you know, and, and so you see how hard people in L.A. are working. And, you know, there's a lot of stress. And, of course, it's incredibly everybody there is incredibly privileged. You know, that goes without saying. But there are definitely stressors and there are definitely um uh, things that you, you don't think about before you're there, um, difficulties that you, you know, that, that walking the red carpet can be incredibly stressful with people screaming questions at you. And, uh, you know, you think that that, that, that looks so glamorous, but then when you, you, you do it, you realize that these people are doing a job just like anyone else. And that job has its own difficulties as well, which yeah. isn't to say that, you know, I, I'm not grateful. It was an amazing experience, but, uh, it's stuff that you really don't think about before, it happens to you before you're in that situation. Now, when you when it became the movie, I know they changed the locale, but what did you think of the casting? And you must think as a writer, when they cast some major talent like that, you must sit there and look inside yourself and go, man, I'm doing something right because this is not like some B movie. This is has major talent, a very successful director, and De Niro. Yeah, I mean it's you, it's 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 heady, you know, and you were definitely grateful for it, and uh, you know I, I tried to really go into it and be as professional as possible. You know, it wasn't like that. My goal was never to, you know, go to Hollywood once and have this kind of fairy tale experience. My goal was to work in Hollywood for many many years, you know, and so. I looked at everything as, um, you know, it is an old line, you know, if you get in the end zone, act like you've been there before. Right. You know, and, and, uh, I, I tried to be professional and I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of, of David, you know, David O. Russell. I, I, I've really enjoyed many of his films and, you know, I just went in there thinking like, I need to learn, you know, I need to figure this out and I need to, um, 
act professional and you know it was it was, it was an amazing experience um, but also it was an experience where I said you know I, I want to do this again and you know I want to I want to figure this out and I want to make contacts and I want to be professional and and that's what I did you know and um, it's led to a lot of other amazing experiences that I'm working on now you know I've, I have several projects going on in, in Hollywood and and so, you know, I'm not trying to, to downplay um, how uh, amazing it was, but, you know, I think when you get there, your, your job isn't to be a fan. Your job is to be um, a professional. Uh, and, and I think that that is something that I really wanted to do, what um, I always want to do in my career, uh, you know, so. What did you, uh, what made you write a young adult novel? after what I mean what was it went through your mind because it seems like you had you had found your stride you had taken your mask down what made you to go for that genre well it was we had published uh, the silver linings playbook or maybe it had been right before it came out and I had actually written another adult book and it was called why you came this way and my editor didn't like it at all she she just didn't like it and my agent loved it and he said to me um, you know, we're in a little bit of a tough spot because we don't want to take this to another publisher. And, you know, when the movie comes out, we'll be in such a better position. And so he suggested that I write a YA book. And I had a lot of genre snobbery at the time, you know, which I don't anymore. But, you know, I said, I do not write YA. And he rolled his eyes. And, you know, he said, you know, the catcher in the rye is YA, you know, and like, there's a lot of great YA stories, like you should diversify. Um, which turned out to be the, some of the best advice I got, you know, like hang up your academic snobbery, hang up your MFA snobbery and do the work that's there to do, like be a professional. And he said to me, you know, you write very voice driven stuff. Like you you have kind of voicey characters, you write in first person, it'd be, it'd be perfect for YA. And so I, I wrote a book called, um, Elephant Mouse and, Uh, He pitched it around New York and the response was kind of like, this is bizarre. It's just, it was a very weird kind of absurd book. Um, I often say I was trying to do like Haruki Murakami does YA. It it wasn't really what I do now. And, and everyone was kind of like, we don't know what this is, but I had one editor at Little Brown by the name of Alvina Ling who said, I kind of dig this, but I'm not going to publish it. Try again, you know, write something else. So I'd actually written two novels, you know, an adult novel and a YA novel after Silver Linings Playbook that weren't published. And then I wrote a book called Sort of Like a Rockstar that Alvina Ling at Little Brown loved and she went nuts for. And so that was the next book. And, you know, I share that because everybody, I think people, they don't know the timeline of my story. So they just think that I published Silver Linings and everything was just kind of roses and, you know, rainbows after that. But it was it was a difficult time to publish a book, um, have a little bit of, of success, but then the next two books I wrote were rejected, um, and so that was two years of my life where I didn't get paid a cent for any of the work I did. You know, so it was stretching the money I got for Silver Linings, and time was running out. Um, so you know, it was it was it was kind of a. a I don't want to say frustrating time, but it was a time, you know, it wasn't an easy time for me. It was, it was not like, you know, I sold silver linings and then everything was easy. I, you know, two books completely written, which I thought were great. And my editor, I mean, excuse me, my agent thought were great that did not go and never sold to this day. Um, so, you know, 
once the YA book did sell, sort of like a rock star, I, I, I had a relationship with Little Brown, and I've been able to publish four books with them, of which I'm incredibly proud. And all of them have been optioned for film, and they're all in various stages of development um, in Hollywood now. So, you know, my agent was super smart to advise me to to diversify in my career, and I'm certainly glad that I got over whatever lingering academic snobbery I had about writing YA. Now, when you write, and when those four books when you wrote, was it was it different from writing in a basement to writing, I mean, or was your mindset the same? Because, you know, as you said, you wrote the first one in a basement in, in your wife's uh, parents' basement, and then all of a sudden you had your own place. How did your writing process, did it change at all? Or, I mean, how would you sit there and get up and start writing? And where did you find your ideas for these four books? Um, well, there's a lot of questions there. Uh, I think to, to start off, I don't think my writing process changed at all. Um, the only thing that might have changed was I became aware of the feelings I had when I published. So, you know, not only, you know, the exhilaration of the praise, but also, you know, when the bad reviews come in, they, they hurt, you know, and they, you know, sometimes people don't review you in a way that feels fair. And sometimes it's politically motivated or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I started to become aware that anything I was writing, if it was going to be published, it would not be mine anymore. Um, you kind of let it go into the world and then people have their way with it. And so I don't know that that changed the way that I wrote, but it, it changed the way that I felt about writing. You know, publishing definitely is a test um, because it's not really what you think it's going to be before you publish almost every fiction writer i know goes into some version of a depression after they publish a book um, and that's not to say that they're not grateful for the experience or they don't realize how privileged you are to publish a book it's just an intense emotional experience and you know i'm coming out of my book tour i just on book tour for three weeks um, and i'm promoting a book called the reason you're alive uh, which I'm super proud of, and I'm writing a screenplay right now, and um, you know, great things are happening. But you know, it, it's it's always an intense emotional experience to to put that into the world. So I, I think that that's what you know. You become cognizant of that, like you you, you start to realize that it, it takes this great emotional effort to to publish and to endure. Um, the responses and then to pick yourself up and keep going, you know, to keep doing it again and again and again um, to have a career. And again, like I don't want to suggest that, you know, I'm complaining about this or I don't realize how privileged I am. It's just an emotional reality that you, you don't understand until you actually have been through it. I'm not sure what the next question was. You had a, a few. I, I kind of forget what. I, just, I was just uh, talking about your writing style and uh, I want to talk about your new book now, though, The Reason You're Alive. And, oh, yeah, let's do that. Now, it's – the main character is a Vietnam vet. How, where did you get the idea to write this book? And and it's – I mean, how do you come up – how did you come up with this character? Uh, I'll try to give you the, the, the short version. Um, I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. Uh, my grandfather was a World War II vet. And my uncle, Pete, to whom the book is dedicated, is a Vietnam vet. And I want to state that um, David Granger isn't supposed to be, you know, an alter ego for my uncle Pete, but is very much inspired by um, 
the time that I spent with my my grandfather and my uncle. You know, these two um, were veterans who were very much affected by war in a negative way. You know, I would say um, definitely people who dealt with PTSD and huge influences on my life. Um, you know, again, I grew up in this Republican, conservative, uh, Methodist family. And of course, uh, when you leave and go to a liberal arts university that would happen to be Catholic, um, and you major in secondary ed in English, your worldview changes, you know, in, in a way that sometimes makes it uncomfortable um, to come home and sit around the dinner table with the people that, you know, you used to share a worldview with, um, you know, and I, I've been talking on the road about how I now work in extremely um, liberal professions, you know, both in New York with the with the with the publishing in in L.A. Um, with the movie industry, people are you know off the charts liberal, and uh, sometimes I'll make comments about you know right wing nut jobs or um, you know the, we play the I'm on team blue or I'm on team red, and everyone else is irrelevant, and you know especially after this last election. Uh, you know, and those types of comments sometimes were difficult for me because, you know, I realized that sometimes people were dismissing whole swaths of people that they don't know. Um, and so, you know, why I might have moved away from the political leanings of my uncle and my grandfather, I understood why they felt the way that they did. Um, and I also understood that they were people who were good people. You know, they, they might not have had the same political leanings that I did, but they were these hugely wonderful influences on my life and they had a lot of a, a lot of good to offer too so i wrote this book i came up with this character david granger who is this 68 year old um, vietnam vet uh, who has brain surgery to remove a tumor that he attributes to agent orange and when the tumor is removed he loses his filter and so he says a lot of things that you would think um an ex-military right-wing conservative person um, would say. And my idea for the book was I wanted to put this brash, you know, offensive, um, you know, right-wing voice out there. Uh, the book is written in first person, but then my goal was to make people who might be left-leaning fall in love with this guy, you know, and, and to start to see him as a human being and to understand why um, he has the opinions that he has. And, you know, the feedback that I've gotten on tour especially from some of my fans who lead, you know, left, they'll say, you know, I didn't know if I was on board with this for the first five pages. I was really worried if I was going to like this book. But by the end of the novel, I really fell in love with this guy and I understood him as a human being. And, you know, for me, always moving that needle towards empathy and understanding um, is really important. It's what I tried to do when I was a teacher at Haddonfield. Like, that's why we read books, you know, to, to move the, the, the needle towards empathy and understanding. Why do people feel the way that they feel? Like, why do people have the opinions that they have? Let's figure that out. And, you know, I, I want to stress that I wrote this book before um, the last presidential election heated up. I wasn't thinking about Trump at all. I never dreamed that Trump would be the next president. So it, it really wasn't a response to that at all. But I feel like I felt that tension even before the, the last election. Well, it's funny because you do say that about, you know, I grew up 
similar to you. Well, my mom was a Democrat. My father was a Republican. World War II veteran was in D-Day. And I, so I grew up, I know, I was Presbyterian, so I know what you grew up with. And you're right. A lot of times people now, they, they polarize the far right and the far left. And it's good mm-hmm. that for you that you, first of all, you foresaw that, even though it was happening, it was great you saw that trend. But it's good because now, you know, People who make, you know, are unfiltered and make comments sometimes, it doesn't mean they're bad people. And so many people now are taking that. You see it on Facebook where people just trash someone because they make a, a, a comment. It's like, it's just their opinion. Yeah, and I also think, too, we, we live in um, a society that, you know, wants to create safe spaces. And, like, I get it. You know, I, I'm, I'm a novelist. So I, I know the power of words. Like, I think words have meaning. I think words can be weaponized. I, I get all of that. But at the same time, you know, if we have this world where we're always saying, you, here's the list of things that you can't say. And if you say them, we're going to crucify you on social media. You're not, people will just learn what not to say in a certain situation. You know, that doesn't mean that they're not offensive or racist underneath. Um, you know, so I, I think that's really what I wanted to get to. And I think also, you know, David is this guy at the end of his life who's dealing with the fact that the rules for society have radically changed. Um, you know, and he's making an effort to adjust to those rules, but he's not going to be able to do that overnight. You know, he's going, he's going to need some practice. You know, he's going to need to make some mistakes. And he has this son who's, his name is Henri, who's incredibly liberal and has just no tolerance for his father. And, you know, one of the things I do in the book is his father goes out and of course, you know, he's trying to cobble together this new family after his son has banished him from the family. And of course the people that he meets are not necessarily going to be all, male white and straight anymore and you know it's it's interesting that the people that he meets that are unlike his son you know and the fact that you know his son is straight white male are actually you know maybe a little bit more tolerant to his father than you know than his son is who claims to be this um you know this liberal person so you know i wanted to play around with that a little bit and you know, I'm not necessarily trying to make any type of statement with the novel. Like, I'm trying not trying to be didactic, but you know, I think it's a time when we need to have conversations about this stuff. When you know, we can't just say, you know, if you say this, then that means this, or you know, here are the list of things that we could never say because it's America and we should be able to say whatever we want. Um, but we should also be able to disagree with people that we don't agree with. Um, you know, so I wanted to play with these ideas. So when you finished the book, were you, were you, what did your editor think? Were you very proud of the work? I mean, when you sit there and finish a book, do you pat yourself on the back or is there sometimes where you finish it and go, you know what, I have to go back in and work on it a little bit. How was the, how long was the process for this to write? Well, with this book, I I sold it to HarperCollins, um, as a two page pitch. So they knew what they were getting. Um, you know, so I've learned now that when I finish a novel, I, I sit on it for at least two weeks because when you finish a novel, it's it's yours and you feel good about it and there's this kind of nice glow. And then as soon as you send it to your editor, it's her job to make it better, which means she's got to criticize it, you know, and and that that is a necessary part of the process. Um you know, if you have an editor who tells you, like, this book is great, and we don't need to change anything, you know, they're not doing their job, because it can always get better. Um, but it, it's a 
difficult transition to, you know, be alone with a, a novel for months or years and, and it's just yours. And like you're, it, you become so enmeshed with it and it's such this intimate thing. And then as soon as you send it to New York and LA, it becomes a product. And, you know, and I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, like it, that's what you're doing. You're selling it, you know, like you want it to become a product, but you have to put on a different hat at that point. No longer are you, you know, birthing this thing into the world, like this intimate thing where you, you're, you're the God of it. And, you know, it's just yours. It just exists in your imagination. Um, then it, people will start to look at it. And so my editor read it and, you know, she said, she loved it, but she also had a lot of ideas and she wanted to work on the voice. And um, there were things that she wanted to tone down. Um, and, you know, she, she gave me really, really smart feedback. And so when I get that feedback, usually it takes me a day or two to be objective about it. Um, you know, you get this feedback and you think the book is perfect. And then you get like four pages of feedback and you're, you're angry for a day. And you say, this can't possibly be so. She's wrong. And then I show it to my wife and she says, well, you know, I think she makes some fair points. And then you, <laughs> you, you slowly come around and, you know, you check your ego and you start saying, what is the best thing for this story? And, you know, you realize that, you know, these Jennifer Barth, who I work with at HarperCollins, has had years of experience and she's a super smart person. Um, you know, so we work together and then we make the book better and better and and until we get to a point where we feel it's the best we can make it. And then we put it into the world. And the similar, you know, experience in, in um, Hollywood, you know, we sold this book. We had a couple suitors and I decided to go with Miramax. And um, we brought on a director with whom I've been working with for a year and a half. Uh, and it's not been announced yet. So I can't say the name of this director, but I've had a really good experience. And I've written several drafts already. You know, the first draft I wrote for this, the first screenplay adaptation, I, I thought was amazing. And I still think it's amazing. But the studio had notes and the director had notes and the producer had notes and not all of those notes were in agreement. Um, and so you, that's when you have to be professional again. You know, you have to check your ego and you have to say, you know, what is the, not even what is the best version of the book to make a movie, but what is the best, version for this combination of people with this producer with this director with this studio with me as a writer what is the best story we can do with that combination which involves a lot of conversation and compromising and you know trying to merge your creative vision um, which is a very complicated dance and i think that's why so many movies don't get made i'm always saying to people your favorite movie you've never seen because 99 percent of everything never gets made because uh, it's so hard to get people on the same page creatively, um, especially when there's so much money at stake. Um, it's just a really difficult process. And so, you know, you just keep working, you keep chipping away, um, you, you keep trying to be professional. And, you know, hopefully one day you, you get to a point where everyone's in agreement and you can make a good film, you know, so that's what I'm working on now. Now, how many, how much, when you look into the screenplay, you have to, as you said, you have to edit the book. I mean, how do you sit there and decide what comes and goes? And you said you, it's a very, you talk to a lot of people, but there has to be some nuggets that you want to stay and the studio doesn't want. And and how do you fight for that? And, and it must be very hard to let that, like if it's something really special you think, but they think, well, it's not going to work, it's, you know, because we know, well, now movies could be longer. But how do you sit there and deal with that when 
it's going to a part may be gone. I, I think you know, the, the first word that comes to mind is humbly. You know, like um, it's no secret that in Hollywood, the writer is the, the lowest guy on the, on the you know whatever like the scale that you're, you're you're using. You know, you're the least important person in Hollywood, and you know that's not to say that you're not important, but you know this this time around the director I'm working with is somebody that I really respect and really, really loves the book. Um, he has a, a passion for the book that um, is impressive. You know, it's, it's, he, he really wants to champion the book, but the difficult thing is the book is told hundred percent from David Granger's point of view. And he's an unreliable narrator, especially since he's had brain surgery. So what he says about his son, Henri, the way that he describes him in the book is not necessarily how Henri really is. And so when you put those characters on the screen, Henri becomes a very different character as everyone else in the book does, because the audience no longer sees that character through the lens of David Granger's mind. You're going to see that character on screen as that character. So there's a lot of things that you have to do just to... um, adapt the book so it works as a movie so that's the first first obstacle you know um translating the the book to film and i remember when i first met david o russell and and harvey weinstein says this to me too they say you're really hard to adapt you're really hard to adapt because you do this first person unreliable narrator thing that works really well as a novel but it's trickier to pull off in a movie and the tone is hard to pull off too and when they first said that to me, I just didn't, I had no idea what they were talking about. I thought, what do you mean I'm hard to adapt? We just had an Oscar winning film. It was great. And David told me that he had done, I don't know, the number it was something like 26 drafts of Silver Linings that he'd worked on it for a long time. And then when I started to try to adapt myself, I, I started thinking, they're right. You are hard to adapt. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, you have to be humble and you've got to serve the story. You've got to serve the project. And, and, um, you know, you take those notes from the, the producer and the, the director and the studio. And you, you say to yourself, everybody's trying to do the same thing. Everybody's trying to make the best version of this film. Um, but then you have to ask yourself, um, what is the best version of the film? And so you fight for the things that you, you feel are going to be the, the best version. I could give you specifics with this, but I, I, I can't because we're not talking about this publicly yet, so right. I, I don't want to betray confidences. Oh, no problem. But there are very specific things that I'm referring to. Now, is the movie when you? Because now it seems like when you write a book, you know, it, it gets picked up for a movie. Um, for this book, has it been has it been cast in the movie, or who would you see? playing your lead i mean do you ever sit there when you write and you know now that you know your books are going to movies and now that you are writing screenplays too do you ever envision like and you know visualize who you think would be good in this role when i'm writing the novel no i I think of the characters just as characters i think it would be kind of dangerous to write with an actor i think it would ruin the experience of the novel but when i write a screenplay it is very helpful to know who we're targeting um, so, for example, I'm writing a, a, an original screenplay for the Weinstein Company, and it's kind of a three-hander with, you know, for three A-list actors. And, you know, I, I specifically, tar- we, we targeted three actors, and I actually spoke with one on the phone. So I know knew that I'm writing this role for that actor, and that is very helpful. For the reason you're alive, we, we do have somebody 
um, in mind to play David Granger, who is interested in playing David Granger. Unfortunately, I can't tell you right. who that is at this point. And so as I'm doing the edits, you're trying to write for that actor's strengths. Um, and, you know, that's that's I think that's very helpful to do. And the first thing that they're going to do when they read the script is they're going to give you notes, too. So the actors are going to give you notes. So for the original screenplay, um, for the Weinstein Company, once Harvey and I decided who we were going to target for the lead, that changed the way that I wrote that role. And, you know, I went and watched a bunch of films that that, that lead was in, and then I talked to the person on the phone. Um, and, you know, I went back and specifically wrote the role for that, that actor. So I think it's different for a screenplay because the actor has to inhabit the character in a way that, you know, you don't need that to happen in a novel, obviously, because the person reading the book is just going to make up the character in their mind. Um, so it's it's a much different experience. Now, you said you're working on an original screenplay. What is that like for you when, you know, as you're, you're, you're a successful, best-selling novel, it's, you know, your author, you, you've written some great work, the industry loves you. Was that a scary thing to sit down there and say, wait a second, I'm not adapting. And, you know, as you said, you're, you're, they say you're hard to adapt, like just because you write in that, your characters in that style. What was it like for you when you actually sat down and wrote a screenplay? I mean, was it your treatment? Was it your idea? Or did they just bring you on to write it? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it was called a blind script deal. So I did a, like a, a two, a movie blind script deal with the Weinstein company. So we didn't even have an idea. So basically what happens is you get on the phone with people from the Weinstein company and you start pitching ideas and I pitched them three ideas and one of them they liked. And then immediately uh, they said, well, we like this and this about the idea, but we don't like that. And so you, you you go through creating a scenario, and then uh, at, after we go through rounds and rounds and rounds, and this takes months, uh, I pitch it to Harvey, and Harvey will say, um, I like this, this, and this. I hate that, that, and that. Um, I want this actor or actress to be involved, like write it for this person, and then you're off, and then you're, you write the screenplay. And when you're finished, you send it to the people that are involved and they give you notes and then you revise. And then, of course, Harvey has the last say on everything. So um, you're really writing for him, you know, and so you're trying to get to him through all the other people who are helping you and giving you, you know, super smart notes. And, you know, they're all people that have good things to say and um, they're all professionals. But obviously, Harvey's the, the last the, the person that you need to. To, to get on board and you know his edits are the most important when it comes to the Weinstein company um, so it's, it's been an interesting experience and it's been um, you know a great learning experience for me and you know I, I actually find it a lot easier not easier but it's a lot I feel a lot more free when I'm writing screenplays I don't know why because maybe it's just because when you write a novel, it's just you. It's like your name on the book. And when people read it, you know, they, they, they're thinking, I either love this Matthew Quick novel or I hate it or, you know, it wasn't as good as the last one or it's his best one. Like, it's, it's just you. Like, no one's thinking about my editor. But with a movie, it's, it's, there's, there's this huge team of people. And, um, you know, ultimately, the people who are going to get the credit or the blame or whatever, in the most part, are going to be the director and the actors. And, you know, probably rightly so. And so, you know, you're, you're, you're part of this process that's maybe, it's a lot larger than, than you. And so in, in some ways, it's a lot less intimidating 
for me, and, and I, I enjoy it. It's fun. Now, are you are you as you're writing the screenplays? Are you still working on novels? Can you do double duty in your mind, or is you you just really focus on one thing, and then you'll say when this is done, I'll write another novel? Or sometimes you think, you know what, I might not write a novel for two years if I'm writing screenplays. Well, I, I've published a novel every year for the past I don't even know how many years, and, and right now I'm I'm working on multiple screenplays. I can work on multiple screenplays. When I write a novel, I need to just write the novel. I need to shut the door and just concentrate on that. And so, you know, right now, um, L.A. is coming knocking, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on those projects right now, and I'm taking a little bit of a break from, from novel writing, but that's not because I don't want to write another novel. That's just that's the opportunities that have been pre- presented to me at this point. And like I said before, it's just, when I, when I write a novel, I've got to shut out the world and just do that. Whereas with the screenplays, because it's more collaborative, I can kind of juggle them a little bit better. Um, and that's just me. You know, everybody is, is different. So I think it'll be a year or two before um, we have another Matthew Quick novel. Well, so enjoy good. this one. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. And it's, it's the reason uh, you're alive. And it's funny because I saw, I, I looked on your website, you and I, this was you had read at the Cherry Hill Library. You were, yeah. And I remember going there as a kid. I still remember I would always get Beatrice Potter as a little kid and Where the Wild Things Are. And they they, nice. would, they would have cassettes. And I think the librarian, Mr. Kaplan, might still be there. I don't even know. Oh, that's great. But so, okay, so how's the book doing? Before we go, how how is the book doing and how are people reacting to it? Are your fans digging it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you always get all kinds of responses. You know, I'm sure if I went on the Internet right now, I could get everything from, you know, this is the greatest book ever written to this is the worst book ever written. But, you know, in general, um, I think it's gotten a really nice response. And, um, you know, the reviews have been really positive. And, you know, the people that I'm meeting on the road are, are telling me that it's doing what I, I hoped it would do, which I described before, you know, moving that needle towards empathy and understanding um, you know, and there's been a lot of people who have told me that they think it's my best book, and that's always nice to hear because you always want to improve. Um, so, you know, I, I'm I'm happy with the response. Well, cool. You know, I want to thank you for coming on. This was great. And as I said, in the beginning of Silver Lines Playbook, you mentioned how Collingswood has changed. And, and my, as I said, my uh, girlfriend's mom lives in the lumberyard or wherever that is, right on Oh, wow, Street. yeah. And, I mean, I... I grew up in Cherry Hill, and we never really went to Collinswood, you know? I mean, I, my doctor was down around there. But it's great that, you know, it's great that a South Jersey guy is doing great things. And now uh, your website is MatthewQuickWriter.com. And what's your Twitter? Because I know you, you tweet a lot. I, I, I hit you up on Twitter, but what's your, what's your Twitter uh, protocol? Do you tweet a lot? I don't do a lot of Twitter. Like it's, I, do, I do announcements. Once in a while, I put stuff up on I, I'm not... Really a big social media guy, probably to my own detriment. But my Twitter is Matthew Quick 21 at Matthew Quick 21 is my Twitter. And I do throw stuff up there once in a while. And we, when your movies are made or ready or the announcement comes, we can you'll post them, hopefully? Oh, yeah. That'll all be on Twitter and Facebook and on my website. Facebook, I'm just Matthew Quick. You just Google that. It'll come right up. All right, well, I want to thank you, Matthew. So people, please check him out. Go get his book, The Reason You're Alive. Also, go to his website. It's a great website. And actually, buy all his books. I mean, seriously, Thanks. why not? And, you know, if you want to sit there, if you've seen Silver Lining's Playbook, get get the uh, get the book, read the book, because, you know, you should always read the book first and then see the movie, because then you can complain about the movie. Anyway, uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. My website is coopertalk.net. I have over 625 episodes up there. I'm Steve Cooper for Walk Your Mind, and you guys have a wonderful day.